Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about writing and ceramics. On this week's episode, I am joined by the writer, editor, journalist, and artist, Janet Abrams. Janet's new book, Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bauhaus, is a collection of profiles that she wrote in the late 80s through the early 2000s for publications like Blueprint and ID. I read this book earlier this year and was just blown away by how well it captured this very particular moment in both the history of design and the history of design writing. In it, she interviews and profiles people like Rem Koolhaas, Paul Rand, Mariel Cooper, Frank Gehry, and Lisa Strasfeld, people who we are all familiar with now, people who are in many ways at the top of the field. And what makes these profiles so interesting is that Janet talks to them before they had made a name for themselves. She talks to them kind of right before uh, they became the people that we know them as. And so it's interesting to read her writing about Frank Gehry before Bill Bow, for example, or Rem Coolhouse before he became the figure that he is today. In retrospect, the era that Janet was writing in, the late 80s and early 90s specifically, was kind of a golden era for design writing, truly the beginning of the design culture that we now find ourselves in today. And I've always found Blueprint and ID to be some of the best design writing from that era. So I was very curious to talk to Janet about what it was like to be in the middle of all of that. I wanted to talk to her about what design writing was like then and what it was like to write about all of these figures looking back now and seeing how so many of them have gone on to become household names in kind of design and architecture circles. But In a way, what's even more interesting is that Janet has largely moved away from writing and moved away from design. In 2010, she got an MFA in ceramics from Cranbrook and has spent the last decade in an art practice focusing on ceramics and sculpture and fine art. And so we talk about that too, and we talk about how this work may or may not connect to the writing and criticism work and how she sees them fitting together. This was such a fun conversation. Janet has so many stories that we mine from the history of design writing and from the people that she profiles. And it was so nice to hear about the editing of this book and the editing of these pieces that I think any listener of this show will just completely enjoy. And so I really encourage you to, uh, to check the book out. Remember that Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you. If you enjoy this show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter written by me as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. If you like Scratching the Surface and want to see it continue, please consider becoming a supporting member. It truly means so much to me. For all the details, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thanks again for listening, and here is my conversation with Janet Abrams. just came out with this fascinating book called Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bauhaus, which is a collection of your essentially profiles of architects and designers, mostly during your time at Blueprint and ID in the late 80s and early 90s. And I'm really curious about why this book now? Um, <laughs> how, did the, how did this come together that, that you could put together this anthology now? Well, it was a series of actually lucky chances um, or encounter specifically with the editor-in-chief at Princeton Architectural Press, Mm. Abby Bussell, who I had known as a fellow journalist in the architectural journalism world in New York when I worked there in the 90s, but literally hadn't seen for as long, Mm. you know, what year was this, 2018? I hadn't seen it. And so she was given my uh, 
the fact that I was living in Santa Fe by another friend, a mutual friend called Raymond Gastel. Um, and she was coming here on a business trip to actually just substitute for somebody else who was unable to do the trip. And so, you know, a couple of coincidences already before we actually met up, I had to kind of look at the email to get her cell phone number to call her because I was trying to find her in a crowd and I didn't know what she looked like anymore. Um, I mean, I knew what she looked like 20 years ago, but I wasn't sure I'd recognize her. So as I looked down the bottom of the email, I saw what her current job title was. And then um, over drinks that weekend, um, she was a juror for a photography portfolio show here that happens Mm. every year. I thought, well, I've been wanting to do a collection of my interviews, which are currently sitting in a couple of plastic storage tubs under my bed. Right. And I had actually pitched this idea probably 20 years ago to a couple of other publishers. But at that stage in the 90s, they were kind of too fresh. And one publisher or one agent, I think, told me, well, no one's going to publish a collection of your writings until you've done a single authored book. So I kind of um, tried a couple of places didn't get anywhere with them and just basically kept hold of the Xeroxes and a few original tear sheets. And then when I met with Abby, I just said, you know, I've been wanting to do this kind of, you know, revive the water, resuscitate them from, from the uh, archives of print because these things are not online. They were published in print before most of them, uh, before there was the possibility of digital publishing and so unless you're a real kind of dedicated researcher and go to a library with a good archive, you're not going to be able to find them. They're not going right. to show up with a Google search. A few, because, you know, some of them were written after that kind of cusp. But um, her response was, call that a fish, Frank? Literally, she recited the title of the Frank Gehry piece to me. She didn't say yes, she just quoted the title. I'm like what are you doing with that title stuck in your head from the late 80s girl? (laughs) But she remembered it and she was completely on the ball and just really said, let's propose this. I stayed up late one night because this was probably November and there was like two editorial meetings or maybe one before the Christmas period. And I Mm. really wanted to see whether it would um, take off with Princeton Architectural Press. And it did. So um, after that first meeting, a couple of weeks later, she said, can you give us some word counts? And I'm like, oh, God, I actually will have to do this manually because there's not like a, a file. Oh, right, I can simply do, right. you know, hit the, the word count and up it comes with the characters as well. So I spent a few late hours literally with a pencil character counting sample number of lines, multiplying by the number of lines and doing an average. And came out for about two dozen pieces, to my astonishment, 85,000 words. So, and that's not, you know, that's not all of my interviews. I've written probably, I think I've got about somewhere between 70 and and 90 interviews that I've ever done. I, I keep finding bits and pieces that I've completely forgotten about, but these pieces which we went through a larger set to decide on the ones that appear in this book. Um, th- this is, you know, my my choice cut of my <laughs> interviews. And I'm, I'm very happy with how it panned out. I mean, there was a lot of decisions to be made about not only which pieces, but even before 
it became the book it is, we were thinking about including other essays of a different kind. I've mm. written, you know, more meditative pieces, especially about the relationship between photography and architecture. That's one of my passions about mm. the representation of our physical designed environment. I've obviously written about product design and other right. fields of design, not so extensively as I did about architecture um, because of the context that I was able to write in to begin with Blueprint and then later ID primarily. But it was not a difficult decision to say, we're leaving out everything except the interviews. We're just going to make this a, a book that is about one way of looking at architecture and design, and that is through the individuals who creatively produce it and whose uh, ideas I wanted to explore, not just kind of write about what they've lately done and, you know, something that's just had a press release issued about it, although often those were the hooks too. So it just became a book of profiles and the other material will hold for later books. I mean, I think, I actually think that it's interesting to hear that there was a time when it might have included other writing also. I really like the the tight focus of this just being a book of profiles. And I have two questions specifically around the book. And then I'd like to ask you a little bit about kind of profiles generally. But you started talking about, you know, you have like 70 or, or 80 of these. Um, I'm interested in how you picked the people to include in this book that you did pick because it is a really interesting cross-section mm -hmm. and what what I was really fascinated by reading it as somebody who you know as we talked about before we were recording was not around to be reading these in in the time that they actually came out I was it was so interesting to read profiles of people mm -hmm. who we all know now as mm -hmm. you know the 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 leaders of the field and you're writing about them when they were just getting started i'm thinking of the rem cool house one especially i'm mm -hmm. thinking of the frank gary one mm -hmm. uh you know this is before they had built anything substantial and i'm i'm interested in a how you decided to include the people that you included because there were also then people like mike bloomberg that was like oh where'd, <laughs> where'd this come from uh, -huh. uh and then what it was like to read them now and to kind of edit them for this book now <laughs> knowing knowing what it was like to talk to them then and knowing what they have done since what what was that experience like um thank you for that framing because um i think one of the one of the questions I was constantly asking myself and being kind of given reassurance by Abby and my other editor, Sarah Steeman, about was how relevant are these pieces now? Mm. I, as I said to you before we recorded, I, I still kind of carry an image of myself as a person in their 20s to 40s, which was the period I was writing these pieces. And I, I guess I don't want to acknowledge that I'm 30 years older now <laughs> because that means I'm the age of several of the people I wrote about, um, Muriel Cooper in particular. Right, right. right. Um, but to answer the question about what was it like and how did I pick them, in many cases, I was assigned these um, interviews by my editors. In other cases, I proposed those subjects to other editors who were, you know, not on the same kind of production schedule as Blueprint, which was a monthly, ID was a bi-monthly. And so um, as I explained in the introduction, one of the great opportunities I had was that I had um, got a place to study for my doctorate at Princeton 
around the time that Blueprint was formed as a magazine that was set up in London by a group of journalists who all had day jobs on various newspapers and magazines writing where they could about these uh, areas. And in many of cases, they were writing for specialist architecture magazines. And they came together and sort of worked at night in a basement belonging to some art design firm to put mm -hmm. this magazine together before it became a kind of real going concern with, with funding from people like Terence Conran and Richard Rogers. Right. So um, it was a sort of uh, almost like a kind of collaborative uh, venture. And in those early days, it was very wide open what it could cover. But I credit two people in particular, obviously, Dayan Sujic, who was the founding mm -hmm. editor, who'd already been a writer for The Guardian on architecture and for The Sunday Times at that point. He was also at the beginning of his now very illustrious career, as many of the people yeah. in the book. Yeah. And he had a complete knack and instinct for knowing what he needed to put in that magazine. And there was a great mm. deal of cheekiness about it, which gave the writers a sense, you know, it, we, we grew up in a culture of magazines like Private Eye, which you don't have in this country. The nearest, I think, was Spy Magazine. Oh, yeah. From way back when. That was also probably yep. the 80s. I think I have a few early copies. Yes. But the, I interviewed I interviewed Kurt Anderson. Very good. Yeah, yes, I think I saw that. But he, you know, the, these kinds of... Um, satirical magazines with an right. edge are, are relatively few and far between, frankly, in both places. I think the libel laws are different between England <laughs> and the US. Um, but, but it was a, a fun opportunity to be writing for a new publication that was the brainchild of all these people with pretty good credentials as uh, you know, straight-laced or more straight-laced reporters and feature writers for the traditional publications in design and architecture, of which there were very many in England. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I went off to America, and therefore right. I was useful <laughs> to this new publication <laughs> because I could write from America for them uh, and introduce yeah. people who, if you were in the world of architecture, you knew who Rem Kohlhaas was because he'd been around at the Architectural Association right, teaching, right. as Zaha had been, as Nigel Coates had been. I mean, I was at the Bartlett up the road for my undergraduate degree, and a lot of my classmates, or whole, half a dozen at least, went off to do their um, second degree at the AA, as it was known. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. in London, as a, as a student and then an, a young trainee journalist, I knew of these people, even if they hadn't yet become national superstars or international superstars so in a way it was just like growing up with people as Dayan points right. out in his foreword that it, it's always about kind of one generation superseding the next and kind of killing off their elders as he puts it but um basically I had a pretty broad palette of opportunities in the states to write stories and Dayan you know would suggest something and off I'd go on a plane to interview somebody. I mean, it sounds rather pat, but I fitted it in between my coursework and my graduate papers for qualifying to do the doctorate and, um, and kept going when I returned to London to sit in my living room and churn out my dissertation. I, I had to sort of come up for air every so often and being asked to write a story about somebody at that point, I was beginning to write for the independent newspaper, which had also just been launched in the late 80s at the point when I started writing for them. So I had a couple of, um, you know, what did I call it earlier? Lucky chances, lucky breaks. 
And I think um, maybe that's the same for you now. You know, you're you're developing your work yeah. in a comparable new platform. I mean, yeah. it's not print; it's it's digital. Um, you know, networked media, but you're probably experiencing some of the same kind of uh, opportunity and, and richness of, of potential subjects for your show that yeah. Blueprint did in its early days. And, and that's really how it came about. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious, though, because I think something that you said earlier, which I think is is exactly right. And it's interesting that, you know, as you are working on this and as you're, you're we're working with the editors, wondering how relevant the book is and you know mm-hmm. i i honestly i can't speak to that but i can i can say what i liked about it and that it was as somebody who is interested in the history of design and architecture writing uh i knew of your name i'm i i think blueprint and id are like the two best uh kind of design publications of that era and so so i was aware of you but i had never read any of these before and so oh. Being able to see them all together uh, was really nice. And then, like I said, to read these profiles of people that we all know, we there, there was not one name in this book that that I had was not familiar with. And I think probably the people that listen to the show it would be the same. But to read a profile of them from the beginning of their career is really striking, and it, it was mm-hmm. really interesting to kind of see that. And and I'm, I'm, I want to know what it was like for you now, like today, to go back to these pieces that are now uh-huh. sometimes 30 years old and to think, mm-hmm. oh, I, I captured REM at this very interesting time. Were there people that as you look back now, you're like, oh, that like, look at all they've done since. I really caught them at a different time or, oh, I wish I talked to this person again. Well, I can tell you the answer to that. Yeah, the the simple answer to that is when I was writing the postscripts, which we had decided, I mean, that was part of my pitch that I would follow up on what became of them um, because pretty much all of them are still uh, active and as or more celebrated than then. I, maybe a couple of them, we'll see, you know, give it another few decades and those names will probably filter. Um, I did treat myself to buying a couple of books of interviews as I was getting ready to write my introduction. And one of them was by Barbara Lee Diamondstein, but actually her book of interviews of people in the New York art world, which included a couple of architects. But it was interesting scanning the table of contents that in that case, I probably recognized 80% of the names and 20% I'd never heard of. So give, you know, a few more decades to my book. And I dare say that the table of contents (laughs) will kind of of simplify itself. Writing postscripts for them, it was like, I would go to Wikipedia and say, okay, which of the Nobel Prize, the Premium Imperiale, or not the Nobel, but the Pritzker Prize, you know, this litany of of honorary doctorates and major international awards, can I fit into my 200 words? (laughs) And there were several people for whom, you know, I tried to sort of mix and match that it wasn't the same list of exactly, you know, stupendous awards that both Gary and Rem Koolhaas and whoever else Mm -hmm. had got. Um, What it's... What it is to look back on pieces, I mean, I feel very present in those experiences, mm. even now. And I guess, I mean, I either have a strong memory or I had deep trauma doing these <laughs> I mean, some of them were very challenging just logistically. I was a young English woman 
traveling around the US in many cases, or sometimes these pieces were conducted in London when I got back to sit down and bury myself in writing my PhD, and the people I interviewed were coming over. And so I was kind of assigned them because I was still effectively the US correspondent for Blueprint. But um, they were also at the early stages of their career. They couldn't look back on where they were then. They, they, were, they were fumbling their way into, um, not fumbling, but I mean, Frank Gehry was seemingly quite yeah. apprehensive. Yeah, yeah. And I read that, you know, paragraph that I start the piece with him about that he was getting ready. I remember vividly sort of sitting on the sidelines as uh, the blueprint photographer, I think Phil Sayer, was setting up the shoot on a balcony of the RIBA building, which is a very kind of mm. impressive uh, piece of architecture in itself, before Frank gave this long lecture to a crowd. And, um, you know, you might think, well, he would take it in his stride, but actually he was... He was a little apprehensive. He he was busy with mm, mm-hmm, projects mm-hmm. booming that he had to keep his uh, attention on while he was also developing this public persona. Rem Koolhaas, um, I was thinking about the fact I probably wouldn't even get an audience with him these <laughs> days. Um, I mean, I've chatted with a few other people about how did you get these opportunities? Well, let's face it, they were looking for publicity at that right. point. They were just beginning their... The, the, the growth of their careers. I mean, I knew as a journalist that I'm a kind of um, supporting cast member to the careers of those who I'm writing about. And, you know, I'm interchangeable with half a dozen other writers who could be and were doing interviews with them at the time. Maybe the difference, I don't know, is that I poured a lot of time and thought into preparing for these interviews. I had studied architecture both as an undergraduate for three years in London and then after a period of training as a journalist with two out of three years on a weekly professional newspaper called Building Design, I went to the States and did more study in architectural history in a in an architecture school that was actually very um, had some very distinguished professors on the studio instruction side, um, Michael Graves. I mean, lots of famous people. Anthony Vidlow was there, Alan Cahoon on the history and theory side. So I was steeped in the subject in a sense like an academic, but I had come into that um, graduate program already having published a lot of news stories and a good bunch of features for building design. So I had. I'd equip myself with with the skills of fast thinking, processing, and turning around, you know, within a week. I I probably wrote the Lebetkin piece the day after I got back from Bristol, and it came out two days later. I I can't do that anymore. My brain just doesn't have the agility, but um, or it feels like it. Push come to shove, I would. But, um, you know, it, it was as much them at the stage of their career as I was as a beginner journalist. So there was a kind of, um, I suppose, willingness um, to to spend time. I mean, I sat twice. I I met with Rem in Holland. He drove me and um, Simon Estes and the art director around to see the the dance theatre in The Hague and to see the housing he was building in, in Amsterdam across the river. And I mean, I would just doubt 
that anybody gets that kind of time from Rev now, or even one of his assistants or his press officer. But those were those days. And there are people right now, we don't know yet who are going to be the household names, but I dare say that my equivalent younger writers are finding those subjects now and are hopefully going to pay the same kind of thoughtful attention to what is happening in their practice and their and their output of work to make some kind of um, intelligent evaluation, not a judgment, but to kind of contribute to the the understanding of what they're trying to do and to set that in a context of what they as a you know the individual writing actually sees they're achieving. And that was my intention. It wasn't like just to sort of report, but also to assess. Right. And what's what's interesting too about uh, both about your writing specifically, but also just about the era and about ID and blueprint is that and, and Dane writes this in the in the introduction, is that you were kind of right there, right as the public's consciousness around design and architecture started to grow and that there started to be an interest in these fields. And it's easy for me, and I, I'm, I'm very guilty of this and I try not to do it, to romanticize that era of design writing. Um, yeah. But I would, I would love to hear your thoughts looking back on that now, that era of design writing. And I'd like to talk about what you're doing now and, and you know mm-hmm. how you've moved away from from design a little bit yeah. but uh, you know looking back on it now h- how do you think about that era of design writing and design journalism and criticism um as this very particular moment in the history of architecture and design um maybe more so in the history of design i mean architecture has yeah, yeah. a long history and a long historiography whereas design i think has you know it's been around as the the multiple professions that we cluster under that word <laughs> graphic product design <laughs> now interaction critical social blah 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 but there hasn't been such a an extensive um self reflection yeah, yeah. in the field of design as there has from you know hundreds of years of writing about architecture so i think what that period that you're referring to represents is an explosion of, um, it it relates to the wider economy. Mm. We were in London doing Blueprint at the time of deregulation, Mm. of the time of a lot of American architecture firms coming to London to be commissioned to do high rises to transform the city of London and the Docklands, which were, you know, I wrote a piece for progressive architecture probably in the early 80s about what was beginning to happen in the Docklands. So, Understand that alongside the fact that this was also a period when the newspaper and publishing industry was in a growth spurt, also to do with technological changes. There's the whole story about, um, you know, the the decimation of the of the trade craftspeople who were involved in Fleet Street newspaper publishing as it went digital, um, and so um, there was a lot more pages to fill. <laughs> stories as newspapers spawned additional sections. I remember this very clearly at the end of the 80s and color supplements, you know, Mm. a Sunday newspaper might have like a dozen sections, a bit like the rather emaciated New York Times does now, but there was tons more space needing copy and a lot of people were starting to get opportunities to write, but really more kind of consumption oriented, comment on new new things to own and buy. 
um, as products. So I think there was a, a hand-in-hand relationship between the um, the state of the economy and the mm. period of Thatcherite capitalism mm-hmm. and the growth, you know, the existence yeah. of Blueprint and the opportunities of, um, of, of the design world that were there to be written about. Right. Um, and I think, you know, if there's a book I want to do and I'll need a good chunk of time and hello, somebody with a nice grant out there <laughs> to write a book on the relationship between design and economics. Yeah. Because yeah. It, is, it is so apparent to me that it is in a sort of sine curve relationship, not exactly mapped to the highs and lows, but also to the developments of technologies in different fields. And that certain eras are well known, you know, like think about the period of the Sony Walkman. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder how many years or even decades earlier than that, that the physicists in the labs had come up with the actual technology that ended up on people's, you know, heads and and in their hands as a Walkman. So we see design as a kind of, I see design as a symptom of other societal changes yeah. and trends. And I talk a little bit about that in my introduction too, but I think it's a a way of looking at design, not as a kind of uh, subject area in its own yes. you know, bubble, but in relationship to many other like moving parts of our culture. So um, I think that the design decade, as it was kind of trumpeted of the 80s, frankly, it's probably a good thing that that uh, hoo-ha is over. And I, I do think, and I thought while I was writing this book, you know, the relevance question again is, are people going to just see this as kind of a sort of outrageous celebration of, yeah. of you know, things that today we would be very much more cautious about? What are the impacts of, yes. of yeah. people from one continent flying as they used to, not this year, to you know the other side of the globe and, and being asked to do a building there and happily, you know, plonking their skyscrapers all over another culture. Um, I don't know that that subject is quite so breezily addressed today. And we're thinking, obviously, about um, a range of issues that were always there to be attended to, but the the lenses have shifted now for good reason. And I'm very conscious of the subjects I didn't address in these conversations Mm -hmm. because they were not as current or as pressing in consciousness. That doesn't mean that they weren't already needing to be thought about, but it wasn't the kind of thing I could get an editor to commission an article about. You know, is Frank Gehry's latest skyscraper actually sustainable on the environment, for example? Maybe it was. I mean, I don't think it's fair to pick it on him particularly, but just as an example. No, I know what you mean. I, I, I think you're exactly right. And so first of all, I think your book idea is great. And you at least have one reader in me that would (laughs) devour that. And I, I I think you should. Oh, you mean the the other book, (laughs) not the the one you just read. The book about design and economics, I think is, is, Uh uh, is great. And, and I will definitely read that as I, I think from what I know of the listeners of this show, you would have a you would have an audience for. But you're you're also touching on something that I think is interesting that I wanted to talk to you about, and that was the form of the profile and the profile mm-hmm. as a type of writing. And mm-hmm. I think I, I have a couple of questions around this, and I think the profile at times can be, and, and this is where you started touching on this, can be somewhat problematic in that it uh, kind of like promotes this kind of hero worship. It it kind mm-hmm. of 
puts single individuals up on some sort of pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get that and I, I am for that. And there's there's all kinds of discourse in design right now about teaching design history, not as mm-hmm. teaching people, but around teaching ideas and, and ideologies. And, and I am all for that. But what I think good profiles do and what I think your profiles do in this book that I was curious about is that it might start with a person. It might you might be using, you might interview this one kind of single person, but you often start to kind of expand your lens as the piece goes on to to talk maybe not just about that person, but about some larger idea. And I think you're right. You know, obviously reading it in, in 2020 versus when they were written, there's different things that are on people's minds. But how did you think about that? Did you think about it as I can use this person to talk about some other things that I'm thinking about or these larger trends that I'm that I'm noticing or, you know, or, or was it very much about, I'm talking about this single person? Well, it's both. And it has to be because, uh, you, you owe a duty to the person you're taking time with and they're giving you their time to, um, honor that, to, to really portray them. What I, brought to those I mean I I guess there probably were a few cases where Diane or Chi Perlman at ID magazine might have lobbed an idea of somebody and I I didn't want to do the piece I can't remember specifically and there are certainly people that are not in this book that you might think would be given that era but I'll come back to that Um, mainly because other people were writing about them for the same publication like Diane had very good connections and he could you know get an interview with anybody but he assigned me to certain people particularly those in the continent that I was you know gallivanting around somewhat Um, but I think the question of how the pieces shift to broader themes than just the kind of uh, close focus on the individual has again to do with my training I mean I don't want to overblow this but I was a thoughtful person because I'd studied these subjects and I saw them in some degree of historical perspective. I wasn't just a kind of general reporter assigned to a person whose specialty field was architecture or design of some uh, aspect, discipline. I, I had really studied these fields and particularly the history of architecture. and I wanted to put those individuals practicing at that moment into a longer perspective. So it wasn't difficult to pick out parts of what they were doing. And also this was the heyday, I'm afraid to say, of postmodern architecture. (laughs) Right, yeah. It was all about references to history. (laughs) I mean, I don't know whether I... I don't even know that I referenced that in the introduction, funnily enough. I don't know whether that word appears. I'll have to do a a search. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's very Uh, (laughs) obvious when you read the, if you read the book cover to cover, it's very obvious. But you're right. I don't think you mention it in the intro. Well, it's obvious in the first half to two thirds. I do want to stress that this book is not just about architecture. Right, right. And it's about an arc and a particular, uh, you know, a a bracketing of two decades one that was very significant in the kind of architectural um, revolution against modernism, the, mm-hmm. the official kind of breaking out of that, which we've now relegated to to the history as, as well. Yeah. You know, postmodernism has already been the subject of a big exhibition or two, one at the V&A, and you wouldn't get 
your degree, I doubt, in an MRC program today if you designed a building the way they were being designed <laughs> in MRC programs in the 80s yeah, yeah, yeah. for many reasons. But, I mean, unless seriously ironic and brilliantly executed. But um, I think that it is important to see that this, the, the book is not simply about that profession, but it's also about the emerging field of information slash interactive design. And in those cases, I had a lot less um, ground to to sort of steady myself on as I prepared for those interviews, because the people who I was interviewing, people like Muriel yep. Cooper, Ben Fry, Lisa Straussfeld, yep. um, Bob Stein, mm -hmm. maybe you could say April Grayman, who was very much a, a pioneer with the use of the Mac for graphic design. Um, they were themselves testing and inventing the field. There wasn't even the history within the history of design to, I mean, the, obviously there's a relationship between print typography and graphic design and interactive, and that was the subject of a lot of those interviews, the shift from and the, the borrowing and the adaptation of uh, principles and models that were established over centuries in, in typography, let's say, for the digital arena. And so I could, you know, tentatively lean on those ideas, but much of what I was experiencing when I met them and saw what they were developing as new work required a kind of imaginative translation back to kind of language that that those of us who had not yet used cd-roms or handheld devices or whatever they were uh, working on it all sounds ancient now but it was it was it was quite hard to describe what i was seeing because i hadn't seen it before right. and they hadn't because they were literally right. test piloting right. it and that's i mean it's kind of that's like what I was kind of getting at when I was saying that you were starting with these people, but there were these kind of larger themes. And I do think the second half of the book, when you get into Muriel and Lisa and Ben and and I would even put Mike Bloomberg in there, strangely, um, uh, it's 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 an it's an interesting trajectory. But I want to I want to pull out something that you said um, that I was really curious about about feeling like you had a certain kind of responsibility with the person also. And I I am a big profile reader you know when the new yorker has a new profile i read it no matter who it is mm -hmm. and i have this theory in the, that the best profiles are when you finish reading them you have no idea what the author's opinion is of the person like there will be ah. moments moments where they're very uh celebratory and um you know you, you just feel like they're fawning over it and then there'll be like a line that just like cuts it and i got that in some of yours also and especially the paul rand um <laughs> I knew that was gonna the, come the paul rand one which might be my favorite one in the book um yeah, because because yeah. I, I definitely think paul rand can be can be cut down a little bit um but i i, I just want to know what it was like maybe not what it was like but how you approach that knowing that you know you're not writing glowing profiles you're not you know you're not going to just say how how good this person is you, you have to kind of strike this balance and i imagine you sometimes talk to people and you're like i think they're just kind of full of full of it and that the, the, there's nothing here um how, how did you how did you think about kind of structuring these pieces writing these pieces where you could go back and forth between uh you know really enjoying this person's company and then also kind of thinking 
you know, they're hard to talk to and, and arrogant. I, I need to just test a little what you were saying about the profiles that you read and you find them most successful or most effective to you mm-hmm. if you don't end up having a clear sense of the writer's opinion. And that seems a bit odd to me because you... And- Go on. <laughs> I'm not, I, I realize, as you were saying it back, I'm not saying that the writer is neutral or that there's some okay. some sort of objectivity. I'm saying that there is opinion, there should be opinion in it, but that opinion can bounce back and forth <laughs> within the piece right. between, uh, you know, I guess the way you talk to anybody, between love and <laughs> not love. Um, yes. And and so it's not it's not just I am I am reciting biography. I, I am spending time with this person, and I am just kind of observing them. But that that you almost sense the the writer trying to work through their own feelings of the person in the piece. If that makes Bang sense. Bang on, perfect. That is exactly right. And what the challenge of these pieces for me was to convey that kind of in not exactly real time because of course when you're reading a piece it's been it's been worked over i mean i would spend weeks yeah. on these pieces i, I embarrassingly long <laughs> especially for the amount of money i got paid yeah, for yeah, them. Right. but for a large chunk of the time i was doing them as a sideline to being a grad student and so i wasn't really relying on them as a living at that point um because i had a primary existence but your point about the experiencing in the course of an article the feelings that the writer who's encountering this individual for the first or maybe mm-hmm, second mm-hmm. third time is 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 undergoing an experience themselves of a relationship right. that they're, they're they're encountering somebody it's it's um it's a very intimate moment even if it's not that kind of intimacy, and it yeah. wasn't, but um, <laughs> it is a very intense experience to to be interviewed, as I've experienced myself, and to set out to meet somebody you've never met and you don't know what they're going to be like, right. and you don't know what they've had for lunch or they didn't have lunch and they forgot and they're hungry and they're irritable, <laughs> mm-hmm. or they've got a mega million dollar project that they really ought to be paying attention to instead of this damn journalist so um you you don't know what you're going into but you prepare for it and i've switched to the second person which is interesting defensive (laughs) Um, i'm sure but i mean i i would spend a lot of time reading what i could Mm -hmm. looking at their work finding out what i could about current work on the drawing board so to speak and likely topics that we would want to address i'd i'd go in with a list of questions and i often would experience their brush off of like 90 yeah. percent of my shopping list within the first answer which is very off-putting when right. you've got to like improvise from there on yes, i've been there it, i've been there i'm sure we all have i mean it god i wish i could think of particular individuals that did that and i would like oh now what um but if you are, if you're, I think, authentic in your interest in them, and you're not sort of charging in there, giving the impression that it's like it's going to be uh, a takedown because mm-hmm. it is right, exactly. You're, you're really what you're interested in is meeting them and getting to know a little bit of who they are, what 
motivates them, what influenced them to actually mm-hmm. become exactly. what they're doing, what profession they've followed, what what detours they took off that path that really have informed the uh, trajectory of their career, what childhood experiences, mm-hmm. what, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's almost a form of analysis. I, right. I don't want to yeah. you know, yeah. say it quite that way because psychoanalysis is a whole other level of um, investigation. Right. I, know, and I know what and you time. mean. Though. So you have a limited amount of time, maybe an hour, and then if it goes well and there's lots that have come up, maybe you'll be invited for another session. That's very useful. I definitely did that with Philip Johnson, mm. with Michael Graves, with Rem Koolhaas. You know, you only just open up what really is at stake for the conversation within the first encounter. And, you know, sometimes you're lucky and you've got enough to fill your word count. But I wanted to dig deeper usually than they were accustomed to in the typical interview, the kind of quick puff piece PR for a particular new project, you know. I wanted I wanted to paint a, a broader portrait. So um, there's a limit to how much you can prepare. You can um, find yourself in the situation I mentioned where you're just basically have the rug pulled out from under your preparation within the first five minutes. But, um, in you know, in terms of the, you would describe it the sort of back and forth between love and not love on the part of the interviewer. I think that's normal. That, that you know, it, it's um, you, you're not going to be enthusiastic about everything that this person has done. Their style of talking about it may be quite unexpected yeah. compared to the way you've perceived their work in other people's right. digestions of it already. Or you know, maybe they've done some first person description of their work well you know that's the way they want to present it but that may not be the way it strikes you as the interviewer so I was always trying to kind of travel a path between the kind of official statements that they wanted to be Mm, understood mm -hmm. by and the perceptions I had that I felt were worth sharing (laughs) with my reader so I would say that um that that back and forth was a was a deliberate um choice on my part as I wrote these profiles and actually I wouldn't know what the form of the profile would be when I went in it took a lot of listening to the tapes I did massive amounts of ridiculous amounts of transcribing and kind of annotating I still have I, I I've I've got the printout of my philip johnson interview oh nice maybe even the eisenman one on the green bar paper from the actual (laughs) mainframe computer at princeton nice this was before i owned any kind of a i mean desktop computers came out in 84 and that was the year i started but i didn't get one for quite a lot longer um actually it was a blueprint that dan when i was back there of a summer or something and dan took me into a sort of second room of the attic that blueprint occupied and said sit down and he put me in front of a mac what was it 256k or something and i stare at this little beige creature and up comes this bitmap typeface i don't remember what it was particularly you know what the font was called but he said like you do this and you do this i'm like ah and i had to learn and cut and paste but it was revolutionary that was happening right there and then um so you know all of these 
pieces evolved according to what had transpired in the actual dialogue, but I would go through hours sometimes of taped material on paper, on printouts, and identify recurrent themes and weave back into a, a text, not a chronological right. record mm-hmm. of the conversation, but a thematically coherent one, right. at least as I felt. Right, right. I I want to completely change the subject Um, because I don't want this conversation to just be all of your work from 30 years ago. That's Uh, all right. You've mentioned a couple times, um, and and I wanted to ask you about, you know, that you actually studied architecture and then, um, you know, got a PhD in architectural history and then, you know, basically built a career for yourself as a a writer. And Mm -hmm. then... You know, you did some other things in between. And then, um, you know, like 20 years after that, you went back to school again to study ceramics at Cranbrook and have now spent the last, uh, you know, what, 10, 10 years or so working in sculpture and ceramics and, and less so in writing. And I'm interested in that transition. And what are the relations? Is there some sort of relationship or connection between writing for you and ceramics? And, and how has that kind of uh, career change um, you know, how have you experienced that? I had a period of, of nearly eight years as director of the University of Minnesota Design Institute, mm-hmm. which was in the 2000s. And it was the kind of, I, I guess that was the main point of, of transition between being um, professionally a sort of freelance writer. I had a part-time staff appointment at ID, which sustained my um, my application for a green card, which was great, um, coming out of uh, a a short period in Chicago, which was what brought me back to the States after I'd done my dissertation in London and finished that for Princeton. But basically, I had a long period in a very complex and fascinating opportunity at at U-Minnesota, where I was able to set up a research program with multiple kind of tentacles, some for teaching, some for getting professionals in for workshops and conferences, producing live events in the streets of the Twin Cities. It was very, very rich and rewarding. And I got the chance to work with some marvelous people, many of whom I'm still very, very close to and would love to work with again. But I was exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) I had done seven years, seven, nearly eight years at a stretch by the time I realized that I was staring 50 in mm. the near headlights, as it were. And I had actually, in the in my late 30s, I had had a similar point of thinking, you know, I want to do something myself, mm. practical and creative, rather than just be observing other people's yeah. fabulous creativity. And I actually thought about going to graduate school again to do an MFA in graphic design mm. because I really love design of you know, typography and layouts of posters. I'd always done those even as a teenager by hand. I think I still own a couple of vintage Letraset and Mechanorma catalogs from the 70s, which I'll be happy to auction to you on eBay. <laughs> but um, I, I think it was really that when you have done that much kind of writing about other people's yeah, creative Yeah, output, that's interesting. Part of you kind of says, hmm, I'd like to have a go at this. But what happened really was that I, I again, another sort of uh, 
I can't think of the exact word I'm looking for. It's not chance, but um, almost like a random stroke of mm-hmm, opportunity. Mm-hmm. I got invited to a conference at a craft school called Haystack in Maine while I was running the Design Institute. And that weekend basically kind of changed my life. Mm-hmm. There were chances between the lectures and presentations, which was in a conference, a sort of invitational conference on I think it was like um, hand, mind, and the cr- and and creativity, or some combination about making by hand. And this being a craft school, they had workshops which they set up for the weekend as places that you could dabble, essentially, as a, mm-hmm. as a, a conference attendee in three or four different topics, sub- subject areas. Like one was blacksmithing, one was site specific installation, and and other members of the invited group were acting as the sort of leaders of these workshops. So I I found myself in the clay studio, and as I describe on my website, I literally yeah. put my hand in a bucket of slip that had been prepared for anybody who passed through and wanted to try. And I, I, I mean, I had a physical reaction. It was <laughs> so delicious. And it still is. I can still put my hand in a bucket of slip and be transported. Yeah. Um, it feels like cold cream. It's, it's, got an, a, a, it's a texture. It's a kind of sort of viscosity i suppose and a coolness all at once so it took me away from what somebody i know calls my wall of words <laughs> i was transported into the physicality of making and materials and as the seven or so years stacked up behind me running this uh you know multi-ring circus of the design institute fun as it was there was a lot of changes going on at the university at that point with a new provost and a new president and a lot of restructuring. And it was not a fun time for many reasons, but I saw it as now I have to make a decision. I'm going to either, you know, carry on here till I'm a sort of old timer, really, mm-hmm. um, or I'm going to yeah. make the leap and go back to school as a beginner, beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. I was very uh, nervous about this. <laughs> yeah. Fact, when I when I sent out my email like the day before I actually knew I was leaving, which was the end of June of two thousand eight, I did not breathe a word <laughs> of what I was going to do because I was very fearful that yeah. I might actually just fail miserably and have to quietly leave Cranbrook <laughs> Academy of Art after my first semester oh, wow. and go back to doing whatever I was doing in the evening classes at places like Northern Clay and the Adina Art Center in Minnesota and just, you know, be a happy hobbyist mm-hmm. in that area. But actually it didn't turn out that way at all. I had a very rigorous and challenging time over the two years at Cranbrook, which I think everybody there, yeah. every student has in their own way. But um, I, and it took a long time. It's taken much of the last decade since I graduated to kind of resurface, to be able to kind of put myself back together. And even more so to um, synthesize the me that was, you know, the journalist, critic, writer for so many years before I leapt off the diving board and tried my luck as a maker because it's a very chastening thing to go from being a critic to being someone whose work 
is criticized. Right. And um, that's actually the core of what this book in progress is about. Mm. And also about the difficulties and the thrill, the <laughs> exhilaration of being a student again in one's midlife. Yeah. Because not everybody can do that. I mean, the reason I could is one of my my godson's father said, well, you don't have any kids, so you can go back to school if you want to. And I'm like... <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. You know, <laughs> I know, well, it's I, not wrong. I sort of wish I had some kids, but in fact, I don't. So I have relatively the freedom, the resources to um, allocate to training myself again and um, being in a position of really not knowing how to do things, yeah. particularly with tools and a lot of materials. But Cranbrook was really the beginning of that. It was a very hard landing. I mean, I'd never done a BFA, so going mm -hmm. to an MFA, having a PhD does not help you <laughs> in an MFA program. It is irrelevant. Right. I was the only person who unloaded books onto our three shelves per student bay <laughs> in the first semester. And by the end of the first semester, I had taken all those books to my tiny dorm room because I needed the shelves for materials and right, tools and right. things everybody else had unloaded because they already knew that they needed right, those. Right. I remember one of my classmates coming in with like a, a huge sort of drill set and I couldn't even name the things she was unloading. <laughs> and um and it was it was scary. Yeah. So um but you can tell from the the tingle in my voice that scary is exciting too. You have yeah. a world opening to you as you perceive the enormity of your ignorance and you ask for help and I love my classmates from Cranbrook like nobody else I mean they were half my age and they were <laughs> yeah. more than twice yeah. as experienced and I got so much from being a student again and now that I have I think somewhat sort of dusted myself off from the bruising of that experience which I do not want to you know, sound, make it sound easy or a sort of uh, glowing time, but it was, it was deeply uh, challenging. It made me confront a lot of things. And in, in a way, rereading these profiles from 20 years previous to that experience was, I mean, I, I felt like there was a certain kind of cheekiness I had in my 20s and 30s that I feel has, ha I've had it rubbed off me now. Um, I, I don't think I have the same chutzpah as I did then. And partly that's because I wasn't as, you know, as mature, frankly, as a person. And you've got a lot of growing up to do when you're in your 20s. I took on people who now might be seen as titans because I was naive enough to do so. Right, right. You know, not because that they I knew that in 30 years' time they and I would be able to look back on who we had been and who we had become, but because we were who we were then. Yeah, and it, yeah. was, it was actually just simpler to have a conversation with the people. And maybe with the exception of Michael Eisner and Michael Bloomberg, I was petrified of doing those interviews <laughs> yeah, yeah. because they were very well known as major CEOs. And you mentioned, you, know, you used the word strangely when you referenced <laughs> oh, yeah. the piece about Bloomberg, but that's actually a, a good example of somebody that I proposed to write about mm. rather than being suggested to do it by an editor. And I suggested it when Mike, uh, Michael Beirut 
was editing right. one of the issues of Rethinking Design that um, Mohawk Paper Mills published privately with the um, inspiration of their then marketing director, Laura Shaw, thanks to both of those. And I think I'd written a piece about, I don't know which order this was, I'd written something about Larry Keeley of Dublin Group mm. for one of those issues, mm-hmm. I think before this one. Yeah, because I was in Chicago and I did that. And then I came to New York and I kept seeing the Bloomberg sort of adverts everywhere, right, right. as you see in the piece. Like it ends with the the kind of um, yeah. what's the word the the uh, triumphal archway at Penn Station, comprising of these giant backlit advertisements for the Bloomberg data company. And I kept seeing them just going back and forth from Princeton to New York and thinking, who is this Bloomberg figure and what is this business? Yeah. So I just said to Michael, I think he's interesting. And I think there are design dimensions to this that we should investigate. And he gave me the go ahead and remarkably I got an interview so that's how that came about yeah and I mean I I don't I think you know and I I I said strangely as in in retrospect not strange as in that you you wrote him but you know someone like me I I know of the Bloomberg terminal but I know Bloomberg as three-term mayor of New York and failed presidential candidate now yes (laughs) well while I was writing the postscript we weren't sure whether he was going to be I know what he was going to be might might become the president by the point the book was out no not happening I I think I think Um, as I was reading it is when he dropped out and so it was (laughs) it's like the book was being updated in, in real time um, yes, I know. I think, <laughs> I think we that, just managed to get into the past tense for the post. It's one of the, he's one of those those great examples of catching him at a different era and someone who ne- you know never fully understood what the Bloomberg terminal was. I, I actually found your piece helpful. Um, I want to go back. I, I have like two and a half more questions to to wrap up, and I want to. I want the half question. <laughs> okay, I want to. I want to talk about this work that you're doing now. Okay. I think it's interesting. I, I I understand what you're saying about having this career, being a critic journalist, looking at other people, and wanting to you know do something yourself. And I'm I want to know if you see relationships between yes. these two sides yes, for you, and, and that might be this new, this other book project that you're talking about also. But um, mm-hmm. I, I it's very easy, and it's almost reductive to think the writing is one thing and the ceramics is something else. But I, I, and you're talking about that there is a connection. Can you talk about how those start to talk to each yes. other? There's a simple word, it's editing. Mm. I have actually kind of transmuted or whatever the word is, expanded from being, I mean, I started doing clay at these night classes because I'd started doing it at this crafts. Uh, in workshop conference at Haystack. Through the time at Cranbrook, I actually quickly started working with other materials. That's one mm. of the great pluses of that school that you're not right. restricted to the department subject that you're admitted to. The minute you get there, you can do whatever you want, so long as your choice of material is purposeful to execute a concept. It's very ideas driven, but mm-hmm. the ideas must be made material, and your command of that material is right. crucial to the you know, the success mm-hmm. of the work, the outcome and the reception. I am now working more in bronze or lately for the last two years. Mm. And this is much to do with the continuation of my education post Cranbrook, which I mentioned a second ago was really just a sort of mm-hmm. base camp, you mm-hmm. know, beginning for a training that I never had as a 20 something. So I've been taking 
a lot of courses at the Santa Fe Community College here, where I live, which have been incredible. In what one of my teachers, my sculpture professor, John Boyce, calls the mechanics, mm. which is something you don't get taught at Cranbrook. They just do not teach you how to do things. Mm. You're supposed to learn, right. look at a video, get a student in the relevant other department to teach you and trade for what they can get learning from you in your skill area. But I came with very few of those. I'd just basically done clay. So I'm I'm very, very appreciative of what I've been able to acquire in the last few years in terms of my practical education as a maker from being at a very different type of school, mostly for retired adults taking the classes. I'm not retired, but I'm definitely <laughs> not a youngster anymore. So I think the common area between these parts of my practice between the writing and editing, and I do mm-hmm. edit books as well as write my own pieces, um, is is this idea of editing itself, which is to take a kind of large morass of material, yeah. whether it's a body of words that you've assembled in chunks over time and over you know, what will end up being multiple pages or lots of words anyway, and a morass of material. In my case, let's take clay. I build sculptures. I'm not a thrower. I don't make pottery. Mm. I hand build usually out of coil, um, largish scale. I mean, I was in my studio yesterday with a photographer taking pictures of work and it took both of us to lift one piece. Mm. I don't know how I've moved it around by myself. But I've been making much too big for me pieces (laughs) to lift and get in and out of kilns. And I develop an overall form as I do with my long pieces and then I cut it back. I'm shaving it down. I am reducing and sharpening points of inflection. In the clay, I've been doing a lot of work where I make a join between one kind of curve and another at a very defined edge. And that's something I've also been working on in my bronzes, which requires adeptness with power tools that were completely new to me when I started doing that. And, you know, in clay, it's much easier because you're working with a a wet material or leather hard and the tools are not powered. So they're not dangerous, but you can still cut yourself on a blade or on a sure form. But essentially, it's about gradual smoothing and reduction and sharpening Mm, mm, of a mm -hmm. form. And I see that as very much the same as what I'm doing. It's a different mental process. There's obviously a different physical process. I do it with my fingers on a keyboard. I do it with my hands mushed up with clay and carrying a variety of, as I said, hand tools in clay, power tools in the metalwork. But it's a similar process of having an overall sense of what I'm aiming for and going towards it, but being open to discovery that the material presents to you as you work it, which is both the, the sense I have in the texts yeah, exactly. and in the physical materials I'm building in three dimensions, standing and moving around. And the problem with writing for me, and one of the reasons I couldn't you know, do it forever without taking this big detour and Coming back, I suppose, now, this last two years, I've been mostly writing and editing because mm-hmm. I've got this book and another one coming out in November, um, is that when you sit in front of a laptop, 
there literally is a blank screen and you've got to start filling it. You might right. throw out the first several drafts or at least a good chunk of it. I think Limbaba, the eminent English journalist and expert at interviewing, said at some point, you write your first page and then you throw it away. Right. Yeah. Now, I don't completely agree with that, but quite often things come to mind and the best example of that I'll give in a second was for the Muriel Cooper piece. While mm. you're in the midst of really working through the material yeah. from an interview, from the tapes, from the transcripts, so patching together literally sentences or paragraphs from like different sheets of paper in the draft, and you're seeing a connection, while you're working very intensely on, on making those uh, thematic through lines work, suddenly a, an insight into the whole thing occurs to you like from a different part of your subconscious and in that instance uh, you kind of see the whole piece one of my problems was that i i write long or i was able to write these long sort of 5000 word pieces and it's difficult to hold it in your mind yeah especially as you have to you know you're still piecing it together until it was in this is going to make you laugh Quark Express. Do you, ever know? <laughs> yes. Do you know what that is? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So Quark Express, for those listeners who are too young, <laughs> was an early, let's say, page layout mm -hmm. software that we used at ID Magazine. And I was always desperate to get my piece beyond cheese markups into layout so that I could hold the whole thing and see the overall arc of my mm. piece on a few sheets of layout, not on Microsoft Word pages, which take 200 words at a time or whatever. And it was then that I could see the, the entirety of the ideas over, the, over the, the arc of the story and cut to the real story. Yeah. So to me, the editing of a piece, mine and other people's, is, is a wonderful process. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's like, you know, you, you read about how translators feel about their work in relation to the author yeah. they're translating. I haven't had that experience because I'm not a language person that way. I don't have multiple language facilities. A little bit of French, some Latin, a couple of words of Dutch from living in Holland. That's but, more, more than um, me. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's not enough to live there, really, I say. But I do love editing, and I love it as a collaborative process with your um, with the person whose work you're editing, because you're you're both struggling and straining to realize what they want to say yeah. in a lucid yeah. and un sort of fluffy way. And um, boy, do I! <laughs> I think there's, there's I have a lot of difficulty with academic writing because yeah. sometimes if I want to sort of praise it, it falls apart. But um, I think. Editing and, and journalistic writing are, are somewhat undervalued or the, the kind of writing that, that I read in my work of my peers at Blueprint and Idea was really, really, really inspiring and yeah. set the bar for each other to aspire to. I mean, there's a lovely quote that I reference at the end of my introduction from Robin Kinross's book, mm -hmm. Unjustified Text, where he looks back at the period that he and I met and Rowan Moore and Brian Hatton and mm -hmm. James Woodhausen and, you know, people like that, uh, Stephanie, uh, I'm trying to remember her last name. But anyway, people who were 
coming in and out of the blueprint office and we yeah. weren't being self-conscious oh we're making the most important design magazine of the decade no we were just turning in our copy as fast as we could for the next month's issue right and you know dealing with what vicky wilson told us needed changing she was the production editor for a long time so um i just think that editing itself is an art form yeah and i feel that that applies across the uh the media that I work in and yet the processes the the mental processes feel very different and are very complementary I mean I need to do work with my hands mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. I cannot simply sit at a laptop and a keyboard I have been this leads perfectly into my final question which is the question I used to end all of these conversations I'm I'd like to know what you're reading right now oh boy uh, <laughs> actually, right now, I have a rather depressing but interesting novel by, I think his name is pronounced Matheson, Peter Matheson. It's called In Paradise, and it's about a visit to Auschwitz. Oh, okay. That might be cheerful. And um, what else am I reading? I am just beginning to read Jenny Sorkin's book called Live Form, which is about hmm. three women ceramists, one of whom... Margaret Wildenhain is a subject of another book idea I've had lurking for a long time, <laughs> which is about five women emigres from Europe during the uh, and during and after the the uh, Nazi era to England and America, who brought with them their training in modernism in mm. terms of ceramics and essentially revolutionized ceramics. In their oh, adopted home countries, but that's a book I've I've wanted to do and have pitched grants and haven't yet made it to get a grant for. I mean, as you can tell, my head is full yeah. of ideas for other books, but I have to be honest that the last few months has been a period of recuperation right. rather than of being able to read more words. So, other than those books on my bedside, um, I have a novel by Jonathan Ames, mm. and I am also reading a book by Pema Chodron. <laughs> and um, so those are the things I'm I'm opening my yeah. thoughts to. This uh, was such a fun conversation for me. I loved the book. Um, I think it was great. I'm really excited for this other book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was so fun. Thank you so much, Jarrett. This episode was recorded on October 7th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.